Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sound in Worship podcast. This is Brian Emerson back for part two of the Resurrecting series, the song Resurrecting by Elevation Worship. So last time I I spoke about the strengths and shortcomings of Elevation Worship song Resurrecting. I talked about how the chorus and bridge especially taught that Christ's name is victory over our defeat without really explaining what that means. And namely, I guess it's our defeat over death, but we still don't really have a great context. The song does not teach our guilt and earned judgment, nor does it teach repentance. Instead, it hints at invoking God into bestowing his victory on us simply because we declared him to do so. Uh, I'm going to read the chorus and the bridge one more time uh, before continuing on into what I spoke last week as uh, three particular issues that are kind of a little bit under the surface. Uh, So again, your name, your name is victory. All praise will rise to Christ, our King. By your spirit, I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. In your name, I come alive to declare your victory. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. So I mentioned at the end of the last episode, I've got those three other issues that I wanted to discuss. So the resurrected king is resurrecting me. All right, so let's let's jump straight into those, uh, those three issues. The first one, you may have noticed that throughout the entirety of part one, and really even up until now in part two, I have avoided intentionally saying the name of Christ. Uh, hopefully you picked up on it, especially when I was reading from Philippians 2. Uh, I, I just, I didn't say it. I, I kept saying Christ. I said Christ's his. I kept saying stuff like that. And the reason why is because the song Resurrecting never says Jesus in the entire song. It avoids it. I don't know why. It's super weird. Uh, one of my core discernment questions is this. Is the gospel accurately represented through the unmistakable mention of Jesus Christ, his completed work, and his free gift of grace? And to that I say that this song does pass. While it fails to say Jesus, it does succeed in mentioning the Christ, the act of obedience, images from the cross and the resurrection. Normally, I would give it a complete passing grade, but in this case, it's just super weird because the song emphasizes over and over again that your name is victory. By your, by your name, I come alive to declare your victory. So your name, it's so important. But I'm not going to say it? I just don't get it. Uh, I have to assume that the writers made this, made an intentional decision to exclude the name Jesus for some reason. I always try to give the writers uh, the benefit of the doubt. I write music as well. And I spend a lot of time meticulously on every single word. And so these guys, they're pros. They have to be spending so much time on every single word. They have to have chosen not to say Jesus for some reason. And for the life of me, I cannot think of a decent or God-honoring reason to do that. Uh, so my issue number two, I don't fully understand what the line is resurrecting me means. I get the surface level. 
Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. That's Colossians 1.18, uh, which means that we will subsequently be born from the dead when we are resurrected. This is the great promise that Jesus' own resurrection sealed for us. However, this is a future promise, not a process that we are currently going through. We have been regenerated and justified at the moment of salvation, and we are being sanctified as we daily live and work out our faith. But it's in the future, on the last day, that we will be glorified and resurrected from the dead. So what seems to be going on here is is a conflation of terms. A better line theologically would be, the resurrected king is sanctifying me. But I'll admit, it's not as poetic. But given some more of the context of this song, and, and given that the terms of resurrection and regeneration both deal with the idea of becoming more alive, uh, one is spiritually more alive, one is physically more alive, I believe that the lyrics are actually conflating all three terms, resurrecting, sanctifying, and regenerating. So in this scenario, the song would be teaching that God is in a constant state of saving me, and that at any given time, I might not be saved enough. As I mentioned earlier, I'm not sure what the lyric is intending to communicate, but regardless, it is not communicating a theological idea found in the Bible. My third issue is this. The line, I will rise from the ashes of defeat, especially with the context of defeat equaling death. It's drawing from the Greek mythos of the phoenix. Uh, we talked about that in the Raise a Hallelujah episode. Uh, so in, uh, in Raise a Hallelujah, as well as some other songs, Our God by Chris Tomlin's another one, uh, Dry Bones by Lauren Daigle is another one. There are many, many songs that talk about the phoenix in, in regards to rising from the ashes. I don't know why it's such a, a popular image in many CCM and even in the praise and worship songs. Um, and while it does draw from some biblical images of sackcloth and ashes, it pulls so much more clearly from the Phoenix narrative and misses the point entirely of what the biblical image means. I'm going to read a few passages that talk about ashes and, and you'll get what I mean. Jeremiah six twenty six says, O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. In Isaiah 58, 5, it says, Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? In Esther 4, 3, after the, uh, the king's edict that all Jews could be uh, chased down and, and executed, it says, And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. In Daniel 9, 3, it says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Then in Matthew eleven twenty one, and there's a companion verse in Mark, it says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethesda. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. Each of these passages share the same formula. In a time of mourning, you dress in sackcloth, you put ashes on your head, 
and you often weep, fast, and lament over your situation. The end result was the utter humiliation of self as a way to show how great God is, how we do not have control over life, and how great our need of God is. Often, this would be done as a way to repent of one's own sin, but many times this was also done as a way to call upon God's judgment of one's enemies. Either way, this differed from the pagan practice of invoking the gods to act on my behalf by making myself look attractive to the gods, but rather, it was the humble obedience and submission to the mercies of God, utilizing the phoenix imagery, which is, which is pagan imagery, of rising up out of the ashes is much more empowering to the individual and skips over the humble obedience and submission aspects. Ultimately, all of this raises the question, what right do I have to use Jesus' name to claim victory over death if I have never acknowledged my own personal guilt and taken responsibility for my part of the cross, I have never humbled myself, repented of my sin, and submitted myself to obeying God's commands. And I have no real assurance that I am completely forgiven and fully saved here and now. In Acts 19, 11 through 20, we actually have a story that answers this. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all seven of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is why you don't invoke the name of Jesus when you have no right, because it's pagan. It's, it's wrong. It's evil. And ultimately, in this particular situation, it led to some good, but it didn't lead to any good for those seven brothers. I just want to point that out. So the answer is that we do not have any right to use Jesus' name unless we are his. And we cannot, uh, we cannot be his unless we first repent and sackcloth and ashes. Not necessarily literally sackcloth and ashes, but in the spirit of sackcloth and ashes, in the spirit of humility, in the spirit of humbling ourselves in the sight of the Lord. Uh, I've now spent most of two episodes talking about the chorus and the bridge of this song, but I actually still have one more verse to discuss. And this verse is a doozy. The last verse says this, 
The tomb where soldiers watched in vain was borrowed for three days. His body there would not remain. Our God has robbed the grave. Our God has robbed the grave. They sing again very loud. It's the climax of the song. And I got to say that it is idiotic to say that God robbed the grave. For one thing, you cannot rob a grave without breaking the eighth commandment. But also, according to Numbers 19, touching a dead body causes someone to become unclean. And if you don't complete the purification ritual, which you probably wouldn't go through if you didn't want people to know that you would touch the dead body, you would be cut off from the people. So if God actually stole Jesus' body, which I'll admit nobody actually thinks happened, but it is literally what the song verbatim says, even if it is in a tongue-in-cheek way, God would be separated from himself and from his people. So why would we want to sing this? Why would we want to declare that God is a sinner and an outcast to his own people? There is no good or God-honoring reason why. And so to conclude this two-part episode, I want to read something from Stephen Furtick that will help us understand why he and his songwriting team at least thought the line was a good and powerful truth to proclaim. Uh, I also have a couple quotes that uh, challenge Furtick's nonsense. Um, so Furtick says, he said this from the pulpit. This was part of his sermon. He said this, what will really turn your heart to God is not when you hear his laws, which were given for our good, by the way, but they were powerless because there wasn't enough leverage in our actions to keep the law. So what God did when he sent his son, and this is why we get excited in church, and this is why tears fill our eyes when we think about Jesus, and this is why the gospel is still good news in the world today. Because God broke the law for love. I said to every sinner, God broke the law for love. I mean that he scooped you up in his arms. I mean that he's carrying you in his grace. I mean that what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his son in the likeness of a sinful man. Stephen Furtick. Man, it, so I'm going to do a sidebar right here. You know the movie, uh, the, the Passion of the Christ? Did you know that Jim Caviezel was struck by lightning while on the cross? And they didn't think that adds a warning. It's like literally that's the joke. I don't want to be standing next to him when God strikes him with lightning. He was struck by lightning when he was pretending to be Jesus on the cross. All right, going back. Tim Challies, he is a blogger. Um, he uh, has written so many great things. Go look him up. He says, in response to this, to this quote, did God break the law for love? It might seem like he did or like he had to. After all, he has made sinners right before a holy God. Ah, yes, but not by breaking the law. The mystery of the cross is how God could satisfy the demands of the law while offering mercy to those condemned by that very law. The miracle of the cross is that God actually does this. He justifies sinners while keeping every demand of the law. A similar quote by uh, a Jared C. Wilson. Uh, he's a, I believe he's a pastor. I know he writes a lot of books. Uh, 
Uh, he says, the Christian God is both just and justifier. And he does his justifying as an act of sheer grace, forgiving sinners, not by their obedience, because they can never obey well enough, but by Christ's obedience, which is perfect and thus perfectly fulfills the perfectly holy law of God. In fact, when you do a bit of reverse engineering on the atonement, knowing this, you can see that in fact, it wouldn't be very loving at all for God to have broken his own laws to save us because an atonement made by a law not perfectly kept is no atonement at all. If God broke his law to save us, I am not saved because what is needed is perfection. It would not be perfectly loving for our holy God to apply to me an imperfect atonement. But in fact, the gospel announces not just that my sins are forgiven, that I am counted righteous in Christ. So I say all of this not to belittle, to poke fun, or to slander this song, the Elevation Worship Band, or even Stephen Furtick. I actually find no joy in saying any of this. But the truth is that this church has a reputation for teaching unorthodox theology. And that is a major problem in the church at large because of the celebrity status that Furtick and the band have achieved. People listen to them. They learn from them and they essentially idolize them because they're not teaching. Uh, they're not teaching you how to properly worship. They're teaching you how to falsely worship. And that's called idolatry. But you may object. You said yourself that the first verses were excellent poetry and right teaching. Why should you throw out the whole song for a couple lines that were almost right? And that is why I have spoken for already 42 minutes uh, with both episodes combined on just one song review because almost right is worse than completely wrong because Furtick owns a mansion built on deceiving Christians. And I'm not talking about a metaphysical uh, emotional mansion. I'm talking about he literally lives in a mansion built on the money that he gets from deceiving Christians because the promises of God are better even than what Furtick has to offer. And if we don't take the time to diligently probe into those few lines that bother us, even if we can't tell why at first glance, then we are deceiving ourselves. So as I close part two of this review, I want to encourage all of you to probe deeply into the cracks that make you scratch your head. If there is even one word that you can't get behind, do your research into what the writer intended. Chances are you aren't the only one with questions and the writer has already addressed them on social media. And always, always compare the truth claims in the songs with the truth of scripture alone. If they don't line up, the song may only be almost right. Thank you for listening. A much sleepier Justin should be back soon with the regular content that you know and love. But please let us know what you thought of these episodes. If you have any songs you would like to hear us review, let us know. And with that, we will see you next time on the Sound and Worship Podcast. Podcast.